big news, because we had so much fun at our last live show, we're doing it again. That's right. We're going live again, but this time we're going to the Ripped Bodice in Brooklyn, which is an absolute dream come true of a location. This show is going to be part of a larger romance festival being put on by Fish Market Theater Company. And I'll give you details about all of the awesome events that they'll have going on that weekend soon. But for now, head on over to the ticket link in the show notes and get your tickets for our performance, which will be on March 9th at 7.15 p.m. Eastern Time. We don't have streaming set up quite yet, but we're working on it because we know a lot of you aren't in New York. But if you are or if you can get here, we hope that you'll get your tickets and come join us because it's going to be a blast. Hey, everyone. A few quick things before we get started. First of all, thank you all so much for your patience as we took an extra week to get this episode to you. But the biggest thank you of all to our newest patrons, Allie and Ruby. If you want to be like them and get access to all kinds of bonus content, check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash pod and prejudice. Second, we have some content warnings for today's episode. We're really getting into the drama in this plot, and today's episode includes discussions of COVID, severe illness and death, and miscarriage. So listen at your own discretion, and please take care of yourselves. And now, without further ado, enjoy this week's episode covering chapters 42 and 43 of Sense and Sensibility. Listeners, one trick of living near Molly now is that Molly wanted really badly to dish with me about these chapters, (laughs) but I was like, Molly, if we dish now, we can't dish while we're recording. Listeners, I was in my room and I finished these chapters and my door was closed and I just screamed, what? And then I hear her go, did you read them? And then I came out and I was trying to talk to her and she was like, Molly. And I was just pacing back and forth in the living room. Yes, it was. I had enough information from Molly pacing to know this is going to be an interesting record sesh. But I just heard this screech from down the hall and I was sitting watching TV and I was like, yeah, we're about to get some shit. We're about to get into the shit. What's that from? I was doing the voice that we were doing in our pre-record sesh. Oh, you mean this voice? This voice. I I don't know why we're doing this, but it's coming out in the podcast (laughs) now. We invented it. And the listeners don't know that we were doing this in our intro before we started recording. Well, now they do, don't now they? they do. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Oh, man. That might be an outtake. We'll see. Oh, man. No, leave it. Leave it in the main. Leave it on main. <laughs> We're being weird on main today. <laughs> this is a lot of humor for what is actually some pretty, pretty intense, dramatic, suspenseful content. The most dramatic set of chapters I think we've probably had so far. Are we ready for the drama? Oh my gosh, this this is the definition of the drama. And it's not over-exaggerated for once. This is Becca. This is Molly. We are here to talk about Jane Austen. We are here specifically to talk about Sense and Sensibility chapters 42 and 43, or volume 3, chapters 6 and 7. Listeners, if you're new here and have never listened to this podcast before now, I, Molly, have never read any Jane Austen before now. I, Becca, have read many Jane Austen books. If you want to hear Molly go through Pride and Prejudice for the first time, you can listen to season one of this podcast, but that is not what we're doing here today. No, today we are talking about, as we said in the intro, the drama. Ooh, I have been waiting for these chapters. This story goes straight from the Regency to the Victorian goth. Yeah. (laughs) Molly looks shocked by that description. Yeah, I hadn't really thought of that, but it really did feel like, and I mean, I don't even know if this qualifies as Victorian, but um, I'm a big Bulgakov girl, and I I read um, the Country Doctor's Notebook that was turned into a, I think, Hulu series starring Daniel Radcliffe, The Young Doctor's Notebook, and that's what this felt like just sick person, bedridden doctor running through the snow and the rain to get to her in time. In case you don't know what we're talking about yet, listeners, there's going to be some some illness. Yes, and some like high stakes illness too. None of that Jane Bennett at Netherfield shit. I can't go out and sick. 
Oh man, when you said last week, they're not going to be able to leave Cleveland right away. I always have to give myself a pat on the back when I inadvertently predict something. I have to be honest, you have gotten way better at predicting in Sense and Sensibility because you've like gotten adjusted to the Austin world. Yes, I think that I've gotten adjusted not only to the world, but also the language. Like I feel like when we started this podcast, I was kind of delving into each thing and trying to dissect what it could possibly... I mean, I'm still doing that and I'm still predicting some buck wild things and I'm still shipping people who should not be shipped. However, um, I have gotten better at picking up on like, oh, this is a hint. Like, this is how Jane Austen writes and she is trying to hint at something here. Yes. It is also that Sense and Sensibility happens to be a more buck wild book than Pride and Prejudice. So my predictions are more more likely to be accurate. Yes, like, oh yeah, he probably got someone pregnant. That actually happens in this book. Yeah, what a wild book we're reading. So should we talk about the book instead of dancing around it like we always do? Yes, let's do it. So let's dive in with chapter 42. The ladies say goodbye to John and receive a faint invitation from Fanny to come to Norland if they're ever in the area, Um, but they all know that that's not going to happen. And John, our boy John, who is shipping Eleanor and Brandon out the wazoo, says he's sure he will see them all at Delaford very soon. This amuses Eleanor. She's kind of just amused that everyone keeps saying that she's going to be at Delaford soon. Even Lucy is saying it. Does she not know that they're all shipping her at this point? I think she knows, and I think she thinks it's ridiculous. She thinks it's funny. You ever had a platonic guy friend? Yes. You ever had a straight platonic guy friend who's your best friend. My mom really thinks that I'm going to marry this man. Yeah. Yes. That is just one of those things like having a sexless relationship with someone, a friendship when your sexualities point towards the two of you a banging, especially in heterosexual situations, leads a lot of people to speculate that your intimacy must be romantic intimacy. And kudos to Jane Austen for writing it so early. Yes. Yes. So it's early April and the girls all set out and uh, Mr. Palmer and Colonel Brandon are going to come a few days after, but they're all on their way. I do want to add a caveat to my whole heterosexual uh, friends feel. I I said something like heterosexual platonic friendships get more flack for romance than same sex ones, even if both parties are queer, just because oftentimes People like to assign heterosexuality where it isn't. You're so right. (laughs) Not to say that people aren't like doing that whole thing where they set up the only two gay people they know or assuming that really close intimate queer relationships are romantic relationships that I'm just saying that like we assign heterosexuality at such a young age that we're just conditioned to believe that if men and women are close to each other, it has to be sexual. Yes. And I think that the reason why it happens there more than in queer relationships is because from an external perspective, like a lot of people, even if they know someone is queer, are going to think heterosexually about them. So like they see two queer friends and they don't think immediately they're banging, you know, because they're like, oh, gender is, you know, it should be heterosexual. I'm like, not, I'm not saying that, you know, I'm not saying that. (laughs) Oh, no, no, no. What we're trying to say here is that stories condition us to believe that when a man and a woman are in the same place together and like each other a lot, they are destined to bang. Just because that's what stories tell us always happens. Like when Harry met Sally, if you've seen that movie. I've seen that movie. Great one. Toxic message, though. (laughs) Toxic message. Well, actually, and not to well, actually, this situation. And I haven't seen that movie in, I was going to say years, but it's been months. Um, (laughs) I think that the movie subverts what it's its own saying. Like it's saying that, but also... Oh my gosh, I could write an essay on this. I'm going to get into it later. I will come back to when Harry met Sally and I will come back to uh, wanting two heterosexual people that are in a room together to get together later in this episode. Oh, we're going to talk about it. And I just wanted to re-go there because I was just like, ooh, I don't know if that came off correctly. I want to make sure I've made my point clear. (laughs) Yes, I got what you're saying and I'm glad that we delved back into it. So Marianne, as, as kind of excited as she had been to leave, now that the time has come, she is depressed and she does not want to leave. And I found this kind of relatable because she's assigned everything in this place to be about Willoughby. Like this was the last place that she wrote a letter to him or the last place that she received a letter from him. However, it is not the last place that they had good times together. No, it is not. It is certainly the last place she had hope of marrying Willoughby. Yes. So I feel like she thinks when she leaves there, 
it becomes real that it'll never happen. Yeah, you know, hope plays a big part in these chapters. And I was thinking about this later on. They're talking about hope. And there was a quote early on in the book. It was like, know your own happiness. You want nothing but patience or give it a more fascinating name. Call it hope. That was early on. I like that quote. At that point in time, everyone had hope. Everyone had hope. Now it's like, yeah, I think it's what you said. It's that it becomes real when she leaves, Mm -hmm. which is... She's she's not ready for that because Marianne feels everything very deeply. And I think she's really clinging to this, this last shred of it. Meanwhile, Eleanor is just really happy to finally be ridding herself of Lucy. Savage Eleanor comes back out and says uh, that she's she's ready to free herself from the persecution of Lucy's friendship. Oh, man. Have you ever left somewhere and been like, oh, God, I have an excuse to never talk to that person again? <laughs> yeah. So they arrive at Cleveland and, oh, by the way, side note, uh, many of our listeners from Cleveland, Ohio wrote to us saying that uh, the food there is great, that there's a huge variety and um, that they they love it. Listeners, if we're ever in Cleveland, Ohio, we will post on our Instagram that that's happening and you'll have to like point us to where to go for the good food in Cleveland. One day we will be touring live shows of this (laughs) podcast and we will come to Cleveland and we will do a whole bit. So they arrive at Cleveland and it's gorgeous there. It's more curated gardening than sweeping countrysides than we've seen. I think it's probably closer to like Catherine, not not Catherine DeBerg's estate, but like her grounds. They're like very curated. They're quite polished. Yeah. Quaffed ass bushes, as we once said on the show. Quaffed ass bushes. What a throwback. That is a deep throwback and you will only get it if you've been listening since the beginning so go back and listen to i believe that was when we had mike schubert on that is absolutely when we had mike schubert on shouts to mike shouts to mike schubert so marianne is just in her feelings because they are 80 miles from barton and they are only 30 miles from Comb Magna. So she starts immediately wandering the grounds, trying to see if she can see Willoughby's estate from where she is. In my notes, I wrote facepalm. I have to respect the lack of self-respect. Yes, she is, she is there to wallow. We've all been there. And I mean, I have to respect. I'm such an Eleanor. I would always deny the wallowing. Mm-hmm. Like, the breakup playlist is going to be like private on my phone named something else. And I'm not going to go around and see the person, but I'm just going to like hide in the corner and be like, oh, I was here for this other thing. I'm yeah, I look fantastic just because I felt like dressing up for me today. Yeah, but <laughs> I respect Marianne for being like, I am going to wander the grounds and see if I can see my ex-lover's mansion from here. This is hilarious because I literally just made a breakup playlist and then posted it on Twitter and said, I'm making a playlist taking suggestions. I am the exact opposite of you. However, I will say the equivalent of what Marianne is doing is looking at your ex's Twitter profile, which I am not doing. Yeah, this is absolutely the behavior of like, staring at your ex's Instagram page to try to like discern whether or not he's like out there having a good time and being happy. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. These books are so relatable. Nothing's changed. (laughs) Nothing has changed. Nothing has changed. I will say um, it says that she's at the Grecian temple. Is that what in the 2005 Pride and Prejudice, is that what, what that thing was where they were in the rain and they're at that thing with the columns. I have no idea. I'm going to go ahead and imagine that it is. Perfect. Listeners, you can tell me if we're wrong, but when I googled Grecian temple, I got pictures of Grecian temples. Grecian temples in England might have been the correct Google there. Mm -hmm. So Marianne is just luxuriating in the opportunity to wallow. It was actually kind of, there was a paragraph where it was like, Marianne loved to take this time to feel bad. And And it was just like going back and forth between these like beautiful verbs about being like happy and thrilled to be there and then what she's actually doing. These chapters are a really good encapsulation of something I have always said, which is that sometimes people want to see broken as beautiful, but most of the time broken is just broken. Yeah. And Marianne really wants to see broken as beautiful. And I get it. Like, that's why we love heart-wrenching songs. I mean, I listened to Norman fucking Rockwell by Lana Del Rey on repeat. That whole album 
is just luxuriating in sadness. People love Adele. Oh, yeah. I mean, All Too Well by Taylor Swift is one of like the most downloaded songs of all time, isn't it? Yes. Shouts to Red Taylor's version and the 10 minute version of All Too Well, which I have listened to many times. Exactly. And I'm I'm not. Listen, I don't know if it's the most downloaded song. It feels that way because we are recording this right when it just came out. So it feels like it's the only song anybody's ever downloaded. I don't think that there are other songs anymore. Yes. But my point is that people love to feel sad. Like the band Coldplay has made a whole brand out of that. And I will try to see. But there is danger in wallowing and we see that physically manifest here. Oh boy, do we. We'll get there. So, okay. So, so that's all happening. Marianne goes back to the house and she finds everyone else and they're like going on a tour of the grounds. And I had to point out that Charlotte thinks it's hilarious that all of her plants have died in her absence. I find that so relatable. I've never been able to keep a plant alive. I can't keep a plant alive to save my life. And whenever I leave my house, my mom waters them for me. So when I go back after like, you know, living in New York City, I go back, I'm going to go back to Thanksgiving and my plants are going to be thriving. And I'm going to be like, wow, what did I do wrong? After dinner, it starts to rain. And Marion is bummed because she can't go outside. So they all hang out. They're hanging around for hours. Charlotte is being super nice to them, but Eleanor is starting to get a little bit annoyed by how chipper Charlotte is. It said something like she could forgive anything but her laugh. See, I took that to mean she had a particularly annoying laugh. Mm, Okay, okay. Like, she's like sweet and Eleanor's like, yeah, actually, she's not so bad. Except like every time she laughs, she's just like. (laughs) (laughs) That's canon, actually, now. Yep. Graham put some seagulls squawking in there with that. (laughs) I think Graham loves us. Oh, yes. yes. Shouts to Graham, our boy. Our boy. So the next day, Mr. Palmer and Brandon arrive, and Eleanor is surprised to find that Mr. Palmer is actually also not that bad. He's only occasionally rude to his wife and mother, and he is only a little bit conceited. But overall, not too bad. She doesn't hate him. He's like the kind of an asshole who, when you first meet him, you're like, you're a total asshole. But then she's like, oh, you actually have some, like, good qualities. This is okay. Turns out this visit to Cleveland is just not as bad as she thought it was going to (laughs) be. Famous last words. (laughs) Famous (laughs) last words. (laughs) So... She observes his epicurism, which is the cultivation of a refined taste, as in food, art, music, etc., connoisseurship, and his selfishness, and compares them, in her mind, to Edward's simple taste and generosity. So Eleanor is also having her own quiet little sad fest. That's the thing. Eleanor is also hiding the breakup playlist on her phone right now, but she is listening to just as much Coldplay. Yeah, Marianne's just walking around with a boombox. Yeah, Marianne's just like, never. I'll find someone like you. Marianne is standing in the Grecian temple, say anything in it across the across to the vista to Willoughby's estate with her boombox above her head. That is exactly what's happening. Whereas Eleanor's got her earbuds on the lowest volume and she only plays it at night and she just covers her head in the covers and just lets the tears fall. Yes. Oh, man. All right. So Colonel Brandon is telling Eleanor all about Edward and the estate. And I wanted to read this part. And we're going to get back to what we were talking about with When Harry Met Sally. This is the part. So it says, His behavior to her in this, as well as in every other particular, his open pleasure in meeting her after an absence of only 10 days, his readiness to converse with her, and his deference for her opinion might very well justify Mrs. Jennings's persuasion of his attachment and would have been enough, perhaps, had not Eleanor still, as from the first, believed Marianne, his real favorite, to make her suspect it herself. First of all, Eleanor is starting to see, like, This is why people think this. However, she's watching him very closely. She knows him as a good friend and she still sees him. The next thing that it says is like she knows that he still loves Marianne because she's watching how he looks at her sideways, how he's like always attentive to her needs, blah, blah, blah. blah. Eleanor knows better than to think that he's in love with her. But, and I know that it's not going to happen in this book. And and I did say to to Becca after I finished these chapters and I was ranting in the, the living room, I was like... Part of me kind of hopes that you're just, you and all of our listeners have created an, eval- an elaborate ruse uh, that they're not going to get together. And actually they are. And Becca was like, I'm not creating an elaborate ruse. And I was like, I believe you. But I think 
and this is the case in When Harry Met Sally, too. Sometimes really close friendship can lead to falling in love. I mean, a lot of times it does. I'm not saying that you can't have friendship between two people who have sexual preferences towards each other. However, I think that in the case of Eleanor and Colonel Brandon, I wouldn't want to discount it completely just because they are best friends, because sometimes the payoff for being best friends first down the line is better than were it just a romantic relationship. So I want to counter this. First of all, with Harry Met Sally, the problem isn't that best friends can't fall in love. The problem with the Harry Met Sally message is that it's inevitable that best friends will fall in love. Yes, I, I disagree with when Harry Met Sally as a whole, but it's still like like the payoff in the end is better because they are just friends and then they're not. But then they, oh, man, no, I don't like that movie that much. So I don't want to compare them to them. I want to be clear. I love that movie. They have great chemistry. It's very funny. It's just got problematic moments. Yes, exactly. Yeah, no, same, 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 same. But let me be clear on this. And maybe this is a tough spot for me. But first of all, I love the best friends to lovers trope. It is possibly my favorite romance trope. When I was growing up, the couple I cared the most about with every fiber of my being was Ron and Hermione. Um, like, I was obsessed with it. My parents are a best friends to lovers trope. They were best friends in college and then got married. I am very well acquainted with it. And it, you're right. There is a lot of beauty in people becoming intimate best friends and discovering in a slow burn manner that they're actually made for each other. Totally fair. I think it is also toxic. Hear me out. That's not necessarily what's happening here, but it is part of what Jane Austen's doing here. And it's clever and way ahead of her time. Mm -hmm. So as someone who has been obsessed with this trope for years, it has actually done me very dirty. And I don't want to go into the details of my personal life, but suffice it to say that I've been taken advantage of on this trope and overread on this trope. And because of those reasons, I am skeptical of the trope in general. And through having some pain on it, have learned the sanctity of heterosexual platonic friendships, like co-ed good friendships. And what I think is really, really, really vital to the whole best friends to lovers trope is that both parties have to be absolutely on board. And the thing about the best friends to lovers trope is that if they're not it turns either tragic really quickly or is something very different and very nuanced. There are great pop culture representations of this as well. For example, Liz Lemon and Jack Donaghy on 30 Rock. Spoiler Straight alert. over my head. Straight over my head. I'm going to say spoilers for Mad Men here. So skip ahead 10 seconds if you haven't watched Mad Men. I'm mostly saying that for Mike's benefit, honestly. <laughs> but Peggy and Don, really close intimate relationship, no sex. I just think there's more to be pulled from men and women together than romance. And here, the thing is, Eleanor's saying exactly that. She's saying, yeah, this makes a lot of sense. I won't lie. But I can't ignore the fact that he looks at my sister like she is the light at the end of the tunnel, like she is the most beautiful person he has ever seen. And he's so devoted to her. So that is my spiel on the Brandon and Eleanor thing. I will say, I get it. It makes a lot of sense, but I think Jane Austen is telling an interesting story about um, who we fall in love with and why here. And even if our better instincts tell us it should be a different person, sometimes it's just not. You know what I mean? Yes. I think this is going to be something that we continue to disagree on. And I think it's important <laughs> for the listeners to to see that we both have you know, that we both have different opinions on these books in some ways. And I agree with everything that you said. Like, I'm, I'm going to keep disagreeing as a whole, but I agree with everything that you've said. In the context of this book, actually, I don't see any chemistry between Brandon and Marianne. I know that he is smitten with her, but I actually have to take the side of some of our listeners who have said things that, not that he's creepy, but that he is a type and that he's really sticking to it. And I think that he, I mean, he hasn't had any conversations with this girl, at least not written down. And it is a book, so they have to be written down for us to take them into account, really. Um, we can imagine. 
it reminds me while we're talking about tropes that that have kind of come out of this whole thing um the the best friend's sister the uh like he's in love with your best friend and you, like say that they're best friends and not sisters like you're the friend like uh, I don't know Taylor Swift hello um she's isn't there a Taylor Swift song where she's like oh wait no it's Miley Cyrus um if if we were a movie you'd be the right guy and I'd be the best friend you'd fall in love with you know that that song yeah that's about best friends to lovers right so what I'm saying is there's a trope where there's two best friends and the guy is in love with one of them I don't know if this is actually a trope. The guy's in love with one of them and he's talking to the friend to like, oh, you know what's a good example of this? I feel like I am not good at articulating my feelings when I'm trying to say something smart. I'm just like rambling. But a good example of this is, I don't know if you saw it, but this movie that came out on Netflix and it was gay and it was called The Half of It. And it's about this girl who has a crush on this other girl in her class. And this guy is like, I have a crush on this girl. Will you write her letters for me? Because this this the girl who is the main character like is really good at writing. And so he's paying her to write love letters to this other girl who she is writing letters back and forth with and falls in love with. And this guy, wait, I'm maybe this isn't the right trope. <laughs> We're talking about the forgetting Sarah Marshall trope. I've never seen forgetting Sarah Marshall. It's basically he gets broken up with by this stunningly beautiful woman he idolizes and then he goes on a vacation and has a nervous breakdown. But then she's there with her new boyfriend and he becomes friends with another woman at the resort and vents to her about everything and then falls in love with her in the end. That's not the trope that I was going for. I was I, I don't know what trope I was going for. So I won't try to compare it to anything else. I'm just going to stick to <laughs> talking about it in the context of this book. And and I think that while I know that it doesn't happen in this book, I think that viewing Colonel Brandon and Eleanor as only platonic, like for my little pea brain, like I can see three miles down the road where they decide to just stay together forever. Yes. And I do think that Colonel Brandon has some weird simp energy with Marianne it's not all perfect yeah I just think that there's um we're we're not gonna go farther down this road because we haven't finished the book but I have a lot of more feelings on this that I am happy to express I just think that I read this passage so differently from you because I read this passage as Eleanor just acknowledging what makes sense but isn't so and I think Jane Austen and her heart of hearts believes that some things in love just aren't so. And I think it's an underrated piece of some love stories. You know what I mean? Yes, I totally agree. And I also think that after you said that, I'm like, yeah, that is how Eleanor is reading this situation. I think that what's fun about literature is that the characters cannot be feeling any of the things that I'm thinking as a reader, but I get to interpret it from like a completely external perspective and like daydream about the fanfic that I'm going to write or like the play that I'm going to do a spinoff. Like that's kind of what I'm saying. Not so much that I actually think that Eleanor thinks that he likes her or that she thinks that she likes like any of that, but just that this is the external thing that I'm getting to glean from it. And I, yeah. And I, and I'm interested to have a conversation about this at the end of the book as well. You mean this is your, uh, modern day take on Jane Austen. Becca just did a full on like punched the air and you know. <laughs> That's what we do on this podcast. And this is honestly, I think this is the first major plot point you and I haven't totally agreed on. Yeah, which is why I think it's it's important to dwell on it because I think it's fun and I think our listeners need to know that we like have opinions. All right, we're going to definitely have to pull our Instagram, see who's team Becca and who's team Molly on this one. Ooh, yes. yeah. <laughs> Watch it be like 10% me. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think that that our listeners, a lot of them are purists. Yes. Um, okay. I I also think, and I'll say this without spoiling anything, I also think part of it is that, like, I'm a little colored by the movies. Sure. That's all I'll say. Can't wait to watch them. I also think that part of why I'm, do, why I'm like, thinking so much about Eleanor and Brandon is because I am not seeing Brandon and Marianne yet. And I'm also not seeing, I mean, I'm seeing Eleanor and Edward, but, like, I don't know. Anyway, we should try to keep going. <laughs> yeah, no, Eleanor and Edward are certainly there. You just don't get, like, you don't get the foundation building in the first few chapters where this is actually one of the, like, only big critiques I have of this book from Jane Austen is that she should have 
done a little bit more showing and less telling of the relationship forming between Eddie and Eleanor. And what you get is like months of the two of them together building a strong foundation and falling in love. So it's not as though it's like the same thing as Brandon pining for Marianne. Although I will say that like, I relate to Brandon on this because we've all been in serious unrequited love. Oh yeah. Anyway, Marianne keeps going for her long walks and she's like walking in the woods and it had just rained and she gets all muddy and she falls very ill. She has a fever. She's got aches and pains and a cough and a sore throat. And she just thinks she'll go to bed and feel better in the morning and is very blase about it, which leads us to chapter 43 when she wakes up saying she's fine, but spends the entire day just sitting by the fire and shivering. And then she goes to bed early. Colonel Brandon is surprised that Eleanor is pretty chill about it. Like, she's like, oh, she'll be fine. I'm also surprised. I feel like Eleanor's a little bit more practical about it. Does she think that Marianne's overreacting or? I think kind of. I think she thinks it's a Jane Bennett situation. Mm. When everyone was like, oh my God, Jane's going to die. But Jane just had like a light fever and was in bed for a few days. And I guess Marianne is known to be a little overdramatic. So Eleanor's like, let's not assume the worst. Right. Okay. So... Hello, it's Molly from the future hopping in to tell you about a new season of one of my absolute favorite podcasts. Hot and Bothered, hosted by returning Pod and Prejudice guest Vanessa Zoltan, is a podcast that treats romance as sacred. You've probably all already heard of this podcast because in their fourth season, they covered Pride and Prejudice. And now Hot and Bothered is back with a season that is all about romantic films. The first 10 episodes of this new season follow Vanessa as she learns how to critically watch movies by looking closely at the classic 2003 rom-com How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days. After 10 episodes, Vanessa will be joined by her co-host Hannah McGregor, a media studies scholar, author, and podcaster. And together, they'll look at romantic films from Casablanca to Love and Basketball to When Harry Met Sally. The show is already so fun after just listening to one episode, and I cannot wait to listen to the rest of the season. So subscribe to Hot and Bothered wherever you get your podcasts to jump into this new season that's all about romantic films, or to enjoy their previous seasons about Pride and Prejudice, Jane Eyre, and a personal favorite, Twilight. Again, that's Hot and Bothered, and it can be found wherever you get your podcasts. Also, this August, Vanessa is leading a pilgrimage to Bath for a five-day trip dedicated to Northanger Abbey. Now, I don't know anything about Northanger Abbey, but even I want to go on this trip. Together, you and 20 other Austinites are delving into the story of Catherine Moreland while immersed in a gorgeous city that features heavily in Austin's life and writing, as you know. So if you enjoy contemplative hikes, immersion in a new city, time away from your regular life, and the chance to talk about Austin with fans from all over the world, which I know all of you do, then this trip is for you. So check out Common Ground Pilgrimages at readingandwalkingwith.com. To claim your spot on the Northanger Abbey trip, head to readingandwalkingwith.com slash northanger-abbey-2024. And now back to this episode. Marianne has a restless and feverish night and she stays in bed the next day. And when she voluntarily stays in bed, that's when Eleanor is like, okay, maybe she's sick. Maybe we should call the doctor. So they call the apothecary. 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 That's a good vocal warm up. Apothecary. 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 The apothecary, Mr. Harris, says that she's going to be fine, but he kind of implies that she has an infection and he uses the words putrid tendency, which I hated. And that makes Mrs. Palmer freak out because of her baby. And Mrs. Jennings is like, yeah, you got to get out of here with that baby. To be fair to Mrs. Palmer, back in this day, not a lot of vaccines for little kids. Like the, the reason nowadays our average age of death is so much higher than it used to be is partially because we help people live longer, but plenty of people lived in their 70s. What was dragging it down is kids died so much in this era. So I kind of get it. Her being like, oh, I got to leave. Oh, I would have also been upset. I mean, I've thought about this. I have I have thought about it because I've read the chapters twice. And at first I was like, oh, my God, they are kicking her out of her own home. If I were her, I would also want my child away from this sick woman. But it was it would it's my house. So I would call for a cab and have her leave. But I guess she is too ill to be moved. She literally can't move. She's 80 miles from home. Yeah. Before a car. Like, yeah, I guess it would take a while. That's fair. Anyway, so Mrs. Palmer and the child 
scoot the boot out of there. Missed on Friday. <laughs> I started making up words. and That wasn't a word. That was a phrase. Scoot the boot. Yeah, I'm going to start using it. So they leave. Mr. Palmer does not go. It said partially out of actual concern for Marianne and partially because he didn't want to seem like he'd gotten scared away by the by his wife. He's a man. He's got to have his manly men. The manly man. Mrs. Jennings is being like very, she won't leave. She's like, I'm going to stay with you. And it says that Eleanor really loves her for it, which is very sweet. They're finally giving Mrs. Jennings her due. We stand on this podcast. I think this is the chapter where it becomes impossible to not stand Mrs. Jennings. Yes. Because before you can be like, ah, oh, she's vulgar, she's rude, she's a gossip and all this, which we don't care about because we're vulgar, we're rude, we gossip. But she's like helping nurse Marianne when she's sick. It's very sweet. It is. Marianne, however, is depressed because they were supposed to leave the next day. And now she's definitely not going to be better in time for it. Hence me being correct about the fact that they are not leaving there anytime soon. The next day, Mr. Palmer still doesn't want to leave. And Colonel Brandon is like encouraging him to go. And he even says that he might go himself. And Mrs. Jennings is like, no, 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 no. Colonel Brandon, you can't go. She doesn't want him to leave because his love is so stressed about her sister's health. And so he's like, you have to stay and keep her company or to keep me company. Mrs. Jennings, she's like, let's hang out and also hang out with Eleanor. And Mrs. Mr. Palmer is happy that someone sensible will be there to assist Eleanor in the whole debacle. So he stays. That's all to say, Colonel Brandon is going to hang out with them. It's going to be Colonel Brandon, Mrs. Jennings, Eleanor, and a sick Marianne. Two days go by pretty much the same. Eleanor thinks that Marianne's going to get better soon, but Mrs. Jennings is like, she's going to die. <laughs> she's never going to be well again. Colonel Brandon is easily persuaded to Mrs. Jennings' point because he is smitten and scared. Well, why might he be so scared? <gasps> oh! <laughs> Sometimes it just takes a little prompting. <laughs> Oh my god, I didn't even think of that. He lost his love to consumption or whatever. Consumption after she got her heart broken and was ruined by a man. Oh my god. Good job, Jane Austen. Really tried to pull one over on me there. (laughs) 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 Oh god. This is serious. Serious chapter. People are very sick. I know. Okay. So, okay. That's where we're at. Okay. Yes. That's why Colonel Brandon is so scared. Of course he is. Wow. So, on the third day, Marianne wakes up and she feels much better. And Eleanor is relieved because in her letters to her mom, she had kind of been underplaying the situation and being like, oh, Marianne's got a little sniffle. So, we're going to be another day. Um, She didn't want to scare her mother. And now she's like, Phew, I didn't lie. But then it like goes in the complete opposite direction and Marianne gets sick again and she has to take medication and she goes to sleep and Eleanor sits with her while she sleeps. And Mrs. Jennings goes to bed early thinking Marianne's taken care of. This is a very dramatic chapter. This is tense. I mean, usually when I'm reading this, I'm like, yeah, I remember this part of the book. Yeah, I remember this. And I was reading this and I was like, oh, God, I was like page turning it because this is so suspenseful. This was a page turner. But this isn't even where I screamed what at Becca. So Marianne's sleep becomes restless and painful. And suddenly she wakes up and she asks if their mother is coming. And Eleanor's like, she'll be here soon, which is a lie. Like, they haven't even sent for her. And Marianne is like, she can't come by London. Quote, I will never see her again if she goes by London. Which made me think, is Marianne having a vision? And then I got really concerned for Mrs. Dashwood. And we, I, I don't know. I don't know. But I'm really concerned because throughout this chapter, they keep saying like, oh, Mrs. Dashwood will be here soon. Mrs. Dashwood will be here soon. But she's not yet. It's not time yet. But like, where the fuck is she? And also, is she okay? Because Marianne was really concerned. And I believe in ghosts. So Eleanor calls for the doctor and consults with Colonel Brandon on how best to send for their mother. And he's immediately like, I will go. Quote, the comfort of such a friend at that moment as Colonel Brandon, of such a companion for her mother, how gratefully it was felt, a companion whose judgment would guide, whose attendance must relieve, and whose friendship might soothe her. Again, I mean, we won't get into it again. I just think that, like, their friendship runs so deep. Okay, so... Colonel Brandon keeps his shit together. He is stressed, but he is like, I'm going. This is what time I'll be back. Goodbye. Eleanor is anxious. Marianne is delirious. Eleanor this whole time does not wake up Mrs. Jennings because this is kind of exactly what Mrs. Jennings said was going to happen. And it's not that she doesn't want her to say, I told you so. It's more that like 
she, she, I think Mrs. Jennings being like, oh my God, this is exactly what I thought. Like that makes it more real that Marianne's actually in danger. Have you ever been anxious about something? So my mother is like, Mrs. Jennings in these situations sometimes I love her dearly but sometimes she will just dive deep into whatever you're stressed about and make you 10 times more stressed than you would have been otherwise yes 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 mom I love you sometimes I call and I'm like oh my god this thing happened and I just want you to tell me it's gonna be okay and you're like oh my god it's such a mom thing to do it's just like get so stressed out for your children which is very human you love your children you're super empathic for them but also sometimes like I if I'm stressed about a situation, I just need a little bit of calming and comfort myself. Yeah. And if you're going to get stressed, then suddenly I'm calming and comforting you. So I think what Eleanor is saying is like, if Mrs. Jennings is freaking out, there's no room for me to freak out. Yes, you're so right. Wow. It is a really big mom move. And I, as a child, I'm very grateful for my mom's worry for me. But also, I am a worrier as well. This is said with deep love for our mothers. Who both listen to this podcast. Love you, Mom. So Eleanor is worried that they waited too long, that Mrs. Dashwood might not arrive in time to see her daughter alive or, like, sane. Like, she thinks she's going to just go off the deep end. And But also, is Mrs. Dashwood going to arrive okay? Like, there's so many things going at the same time right now. Yeah, I think Marianne's just got a fever so high that she's hallucinating. Have you, has that ever happened to you? Um, I've never been that sick, no, actually. I have. It is absolutely terrifying. I have had, like, when I was, like, nine, I had the flu really badly. And, like, I had, like, 104.5 fever. Holy shit. Yeah, it was very sick. Um, and I had massive hallucinations and I had to do like the ice bath and all that stuff. Like it was not pleasant. Wow. So I will tell you that there's nothing scarier than feeling that sick. And as I say this, I know like we should put some content here for COVID people because I know a lot of people have been that sick in the last year and a half. So we should just all take care of each other in those situations. Yes. And also, I think that in this time period, because we didn't have the same medications, like Marianne or Eleanor's fear for Marianne is that like she's going to get permanent brain damage from this this fever, which I think is a possibility. Yeah. People, people for a lot of other reasons, just like don't recover from these things. Some people have been made deaf by fevers or blind. Like there's there's a lot of things that can happen to your body when you're that sick. And I had Tamiflu, which is awesome. Mm-hmm. And I got better in that time period. They had leaching and bloodletting. Although, I'm, yeah, I was still in practice at that point in time. Not an ideal form of medicine. Actually, fun fact, during the yellow fever ep- uh, epidemic in the 1700s, the late 1700s, early 1800s, yeah, fever 1796. That's that's the young adult novel written about it. Um, The bloodletting was very common and killed a lot of people, as well-intentioned as it was. But the French doctors recommended a different regiment, which was sleep, like lying in bed and drinking a lot of water. And a lot more people survived <laughs> if they were treated by the French doctors. Interesting. It sounds like how we treat things today, which is hydrate, pee, pee it out. Also get your vaccine. Yes. If you don't have other medicines available, Sleeping and hydrating is probably your best bet. Yes. But not as good a bet as antivirals, vaccines, and antibiotics. We love modern medicine. We love that good, good booster. I'm getting mine on Friday. Hell yeah. Woo! Anyway, Anyway, that's been Becca and Molly trying to talk about medicine. (laughs) Oh my God, poor doctors and nurses who live, like, are listening to our podcast. I know. Okay, but back to this, though. The doctor returns, and he has a treatment in mind. He's like, okay, she's going to be okay. I know that it seems bad, but here's some whatever. He gives it to her. In the morning, Mrs. Jennings is upset that they didn't wake her, obviously, but she's comforting Eleanor and not speaking of hope. She's just comforting her, like, I'm so sorry for your loss, basically, even though Marianne is still alive. She's just certain that she's going to die. She's also sad for Mrs. Dashwood because she thinks, like, Marianne is to her what Charlotte is to herself. And that's really sad that she's going to die. Spoiler alert, she doesn't, at least not in this chapter. I don't know if she dies in the book. So the doctor returns again. He finds his medicines have failed, but he's like, never fear. I've got more up my sleeve. So he gives her some more. He thinks this is definitely going to be the one that's going to cure her. Eleanor is wallowing and she's worrying. And Mrs. Jennings implies that this was brought on by Marianne suffering over her breakup with Willoughby, which in a way it was because she was wandering the grounds wallowing and caught a cold. It's more than that. We talk a little bit about how mental 
health actually affects your physical health. But when you're depressed, your immune system goes down. Right. So she was depressed. She was out in the cold. Her immune system was down. She's not doing anything to take care of herself. Like not eating, not sleeping properly. For days. Yeah. Yeah. Weeks even. Heartbreak is really dangerous. I know we've talked a lot about how Marianne's a drama queen, but mental health is a really big problem in this book. Yeah, it really is. And also, like, at this point, I mean, Marianne is a drama queen in some ways, but when she's feeling her feelings in the negative, like, yes, she does do it all over the top for everyone to see. But honestly... If we all acted fully on our feelings that we have instead of bottling them up, we'd probably all be Marianne's. Yes, I think there is a lot courageous in the way Marianne expresses herself, especially in a time period that doesn't reward that and in fact makes it dangerous to be that way. Mm -hmm. I think there's a lot of beauty in the fact that Marianne refuses to hide how she feels, even in moments when all society dictates she should. Granted, it's not ideal, but I think this is kind of like we talked about this with Lydia, girls who just for some reason or another can't fit their society's expectations. Mm -hmm. With Lydia, we talk about it as somewhat selfish, which it is. But I don't know. With Marianne, she's trying so hard to be correct for her uh, for her sister and her family. But, you know, she refuses to bow to what she's supposedly supposed to be feeling. She's not going to button up. Unlike some people we know. Unlike some people we know. So around noon, Eleanor starts to feel a little bit of hope because Marianne's fever starts to go down. And Mrs. Jennings is like, don't feel hope. That's, that's bad. But, quote, it was too late. Hope had already entered. There was, wait, what were we just watching? Oh my God, Ted Lasso. It's the hope that kills you. But it's not the hope that kills you. But it's not the hope that kills you. It's the lack of hope that kills you. That's what Mrs. Jennings is trying to say. The British tendency to say it's the hope that kills you. I don't know if that's real. Uh, British listeners, I know that you make up about 50% of our listenership. So let us know if Ted Lasso is right on that. And also, uh, just for everyone's knowledge, Molly and I have only finished season one of Ted Lasso. So we're working through season two. No spoilers yet. (laughs) Yes. Thank you for that. Because, you know, we would get messages about it. Oh, yes. So... This pa- this whole passage was gorgeous. I think it's kind of long, so I don't know if I should read the whole thing, but it was talking about hope. No, no, go for it. Okay, well, About noon, however, she began, but with a caution, a dread of disappointment for which sometime kept her silent, even to her friend, to fancy, to hope she could perceive a slight amendment in her sister's pulse. She waited, watched, and examined it again and again, and at last, with an agitation more difficult to bury under exterior calmness than all her foregoing distress, ventured to communicate her hopes. Mrs. Jennings, though forced on examination to acknowledge a temporary revival, tried to keep her young friend from indulging a thought of its continuance. And Eleanor, conning over every injunction of distrust, told herself likewise not to hope. But it was too late. Hope had already entered, and feeling all its anxious flutter, she bent over her sister to watch. She hardly knew for what. And then she gets better. Almost through Eleanor's prayer does Marianne improve. Ugh. Yeah. This is what I mean when I say this story is really about Eleanor and Marianne. It is. Yeah. It's about their relationship. It is about the two sisters. And part of the reason why, like, I love this book so much is that, like, I don't need the romance as much as I need the love between these two. Yeah. This book to me, I mean, yes, I'm sitting here shipping Eleanor and Colonel Brandon, but this book isn't about them. I mean, it might be. It's about their friendship and it's about Eleanor and Marianne's friendship. And it's not really for me about Eleanor and Edward or Marianne and Willoughby or Marianne and Brandon, if that's ever going to be a thing. Like, it's about friendships between lots of different kinds of people. It's about a lot of different kinds of love. It is. Cheesy. Cheesy. All right, we're almost done with this chapter. So after about half an hour, Marianne looks almost fully better. Well, not fully, but she's looking a lot better. And the doctor tells them at about four o'clock that Marianne will be okay. And Mrs. Jennings is like, woohoo, but Eleanor cannot be cheerful. It says, quote, all within Eleanor's breast with satisfaction, silent and strong, because she is just so relieved. She's not going to cheer. She's not going to get too excited, but she is like, I am here for you. She's also just like, this is a rare moment of Eleanor having very little like control over her feelings because mm. it takes this level of extreme to break down those barriers. Yes. And she's kind of like, huh. like she's been rattled. And yes. She is t- 
turning back into like her steady self. Yes. It's like all the tension that was in her body just like. Yeah. So Eleanor stays with Marianne all day and steadily Marianne gets better and better. They're expecting the colonel and their mother around 10 o'clock and she really wants them to get there so that she can relieve them of their worry because it's not like she could text them, you know, and be like, she's okay. Um, So they're probably like galloping over here, freaking out, both of them. At seven, Eleanor leaves Marianne to have tea with Mrs. Jennings. She hasn't eaten all day. She's hungry. And Mrs. Jennings offers to take over at Marianne's side, but Eleanor is just running on tea and adrenaline, and she wants to wait up all night. So Mrs. Jennings goes to bed. The night is cold and stormy. Oh, is it cold and stormy? It was a dark and stormy night. So it's cold and stormy. Marianne sleeps through the storm. And Eleanor thinks that the travelers, i.e. Brandon and her mother, will have a great reward in store for their inconvenience of traveling in a storm. Again, I am nervous. This this whole part is just, I can't really paraphrase it. And at a certain point, I am going to give up on my notes. But I am nervous at this point while I am reading that Mrs. Dashwood is not going to get there and that Colonel Brandon and Mrs. Dashwood are just going to like capsize or whatever it's called for when a carriage flips over. I know that this is not Sense and Sensibility and Sea Monsters, so they are not capsizing, but you get my gist. At eight o'clock, Eleanor thinks she hears a carriage approaching, and she figures it must be her imagination because she's not expecting them until 10. But she looks outside and sees that there is, in fact, a carriage being pulled by four horses. So she's like, oh my gosh, they must have, they added two extra horses so they could get here faster. That must be them. So she runs down the stairs and she's so anxious to tell them that Marianne is okay and I just can't paraphrase the end this is where I'm giving up on my notes I'm just gonna read it okay yeah yeah I think that's fair (laughs) so she runs downstairs the bustle in the vestibule as she passed along an inner lobby assured her that they were already in the house she rushed forwards towards the drawing room she entered it and saw only Willoughby record scratch and that's where I screamed what (laughs) glass shatter bomb going off things are wild Willoughby making a triumphant return or not so triumphant return. Yay! <laughs> I have I have never been as excited for Molly to read chapters because I knew I was giving her her first real cliffhanger. Yeah, this is a cliffhanger. And, and I did a poll on Instagram of who's reading along with us and who is reading it for the first time versus rereading. And so like uh, most of the people are rereading it, but there is like 10 to 15% of our listeners reading this along for the first time with me. And we are all on tenterhooks over here. Oh, oh, it is. It is a lot. I haven't even had time to process. How dare this man? And also, how did he find out? What is he doing there? We'll just have to find out next episode, won't we? Because that definitely concludes those chapters and brings us to Becca's study questions. Lots to say. What do you make of Marianne's sudden illness? So we talked a little bit about how this was brought on by... Her breakup with Willoughby, her breakup with, her heartbreak by Willoughby and her wallowing and fully agree with that. I'm shocked that we've gotten this dramatic. I was not expecting it. It's kind of like you said, we've gone to gothic all of a sudden. We've gone to the middle of Russian winter. We've got, it's just higher stakes than we've had. Yeah, when I called my mom and told her what happened, I was like, you're never going to guess. Marianne got sick. And my mom went, did she die? <laughs> Almost. <laughs> Almost. But she's going to be okay. Knock on wood. Yeah, I'm surprised by it. I wanted to bring something up. And I apologize to our listener who sent this to us because I don't remember your name. But someone sent me this theory and you touched on it when we were talking before, but I hadn't heard it before. The idea that this is tied not only to Marianne's depression over Willoughby, but physically what she and Willoughby did. That is to say, there's a lot of questions about whether or not Marianne and Willoughby had sex in this book. Wait, wait, yes, that was something else that I said when I was pacing in the living room. She walked out of the room and screamed, is Marianne pregnant? Like, is she? Or did she, like, get an STD? Well, there is a, I think, a fair reading here. And again, we'll put some content warnings at the top of this episode. There's a fair reading, in my opinion, that Marianne and Willoughby had sex um, back when they were at Barton together, when he showed her his estate, if you will, and that her desperation to see him again was partially a pregnancy. 
and that this is a miscarriage. <gasps> Whoa. I had never thought of that before. I want to give full credit to our readers and our listeners who came to me with this theory in a way that they didn't want to spoil you. I thought that was a very interesting take on it. I had always read this as Marianne's culmination of her depression and her illness physically, her sensibility physically manifesting in her body in a way that was close to killing her. And I thought it was, when you take it in the context of the way Marianne behaves in the whole book, what we know about who Willoughby is as a person, it actually is not unfair to read that plot onto this. I think that that might be it. I mean, the sudden fatigue. I mean, there's a lot of things that that could point to that. And I think if Jane Austen were to write about it, she wouldn't write it outright. You know, like she wouldn't just say Marianne is having a miscarriage. Like she wouldn't, you know. If that was Jane Austen's intention, this is how she would have written it. I just don't know that it was her intention. Yeah. But you know what? She's been dead 200 years. So maybe it was. We don't know. And I mean, you can read a lot of the things like the way Marianne reacted to Willoughby could be read as hormones, but also desperation for her situation. Um, Her surety that they were engaged or close to it could also be read in that regard. Mm -hmm. And the fact that, I mean, her reaction to him being so severe, if she were pregnant and she had an inkling that she might be, would be like, she would be upset in in a way that she wouldn't be if they were just, if he was just cheating on her or whatever. So I want to give credence to that theory. I will say that is an unconventional way of reading these chapters, but I think it is definitely, it adds to the conversation in the 21st century. All right. Thematically, what does it bring to the story? We talked about this a little bit and plot-wise as well. Plot-wise, it's just, it's thrown a thrown us for a loop. I mean, I didn't think they were leaving Cleveland, but they really thought they were leaving Cleveland. They really thought that their the rest of their story was just going to be drive home, go back to to our mother, and this is just putting a stopper there. So thematically, thematically it's bringing back the the possibility of Brandon's love dying. It's raising the stakes for him. I mean, there's a lot that can go from here. I mean, he can make his move now while he's got the chance. I mean, there's lots of things. So thematically, I think it's, you know, obviously bringing that, not obviously because I didn't catch on to it until you said, but it's bringing that theme back. Plot-wise, I mean, Willoughby's here now. I don't know if he knows about it. I don't know how he got there. I don't know if he was just showing up for fun at 8 p.m. on a Tuesday or whatever, but Willoughby's there. The mother is coming there. There's so much happening, Becca. I don't know how to <laughs> how to talk about it. Yeah, a wrench in the plans, raising the stakes. What else? I, I think you're totally right. I also think it's kind of a culmination of a lot of things. We're talking about a book where Marianne has been upset most of the time. Yes. And it's just been getting worse and worse and worse and worse under the surface while Eleanor has been dealing with her drama. And... It comes to a head in Cleveland when Marianne's body shuts down with her heartbreak, which is also quite different than a lot of other things we've read Jane Austen write before. She writes, she's famous for writing witty rom-coms about social class Mm -hmm. in England. Yeah. And this takes the um, deepest foray into the dramatic. It takes the deepest foray into the gothic. It takes, which, I mean, that's Austin ahead of her time a little bit on that, but like it, it almost has a Bronte edge. If you ever read the Brontes. Yes. I don't really know anything about the Brontes, but I did read why she wrote by the ladies from Bonnets at Dawn and I got this vibe from the Brontes. This is definitely a Bronte vibe compared to, say, Lizzie Bennet sassing Mr. Darcy. Yes. So, yeah, we we just have like a real experiment from Jane Austen giving us an element of a story that we're not used to seeing from her. Who's to say if we'll see more of that in some of her other works? Whomst, even. Whomst. You could say whomst. I will uh, just put that on the back burner, but I wanted to note it because we've been reading Jane Austen now for two years, and this is the first real life or death situation we have seen in any Austen novel. Yeah. All right. Brandon and Eleanor both have reactions to Marianne's illness. Let's talk about each of their reactions, starting with Brandon. So Brandon 
freaking out, staying calm, but freaking out inside. Like, uh, we could make a meme of him internally screaming or, or something. <laughs> this is fine. <laughs> yeah, this is fine. He's like, this is fine. Uh, I will go get your mother. And he's like, what can I do? He just wants to help. And we've talked about how it is definitely bringing back memories for him. Um, he probably is thinking he wants to do something this time. He's he's here. He knows it's happening. He wants to be able to do something about it. He's not going to be too late. He's not going to be too late. Um, so he's freaking out. And he's obviously smitten, so it's heightened. Yeah, I mean, I think you can see two things. One, Brandon's gone through this before. He already lost a woman he was in love with. And I, in all the ways that Marianne reminds him of Eliza... This is immensely painful for him. My poor Brandon boy. Poor baby boy. Poor baby boy. And I also think that, as we've mentioned, Brandon is hiding his feelings, shall we say. He's not exactly even pursuing Marianne. But if there was ever no chance, now is that time. (laughs) If you think she's going to die without her ever knowing how you feel, you know, it's a bummer. It's a bummer, but also like now is the time then. Now is, tell her how you feel. Carpe diem, Colonel. Carpe diem. Carpe diem, Colonel. Oh, God. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God. Uh, This is still a comedy podcast, even if Jane Austen's writing tragedy. (laughs) All right. uh, Now let's talk about Eleanor's reaction. Weird at first that she was staying so calm, but I understand that she was like, Marianne's probably fine. But it really took her until Marianne was, like, falling ill, like, falling faint to even call the doctor. But then once once it was happening, she was like, did I wait too long? Feeling all of that sisterly anxiety, feeling like, oh, my God, this is my best friend. Really just feeling it and then bottling it back up at the end. I think this passage tells us a lot about Eleanor living in denial mm-hmm. for a lot of reasons. I think. This is, again, the first time we're really seeing her, like, actually lose control of her emotions and be scared and out of control. Mm-hmm. In a way, like, she's been through it, this book, but this this chapter's different. And in some ways, I think this is a culmination for Eleanor as much it is for her plotline as much as it is for Marianne's plotline. Because she's confronted with something much more terrible than losing the love of her life. She's confronted with the thought that she could lose her sister. Yeah. And... It wrecks her. The passage you read about her prayer and then about her relief tells you really everything you need to know about how desperate this situation was for Eleanor. Yeah. And it's almost like she needed a moment to know that sometimes there are things outside of the bounds of society. Sometimes there are things out of what's proper or what she needs to do to keep everyone happy. Sometimes it's really about, you know, is my sister going to die right now? Eleanor needs to learn to feel her feelings. Yeah. And also, I mean... The conditions being out of her control is something she's not entirely used to. I mean, a lot of things have happened during this time that are outside of her control, but she can at least control how she reacts to them and how she disseminates the information and all of that. And in this case, like, it is happening in real time. There is no time for processing or packaging it up with a neat little bow. Like, this is what is happening, and it is happening fast, and she is living in it, at least for this chapter. Yeah. All right. Last one before the standbys, the return of Willoughby, the character nobody missed. <laughs> no, and so we weren't expecting him to come back. What do you think he's there for and what do you think's gonna happen? I truly have no idea. He could either be there for one of like six reasons. So one- <laughs> We have six. I said six, I meant two, but like maybe six, <laughs> who knows? One, he ran into Brandon on his way or something and because he lives in the neighborhood and Brandon was like, Marianne's sick. But Brandon wouldn't, I don't know, mm, iffy, but he came. That's one. Two, maybe he broke up with his wife and he said, it's time to go get the woman I love back. And he got on his horse and it was just really bad timing or good timing, depending on how you look at it. Three, I did run out of my room and say, is Marianne pregnant? So there's a possibility that that she was pregnant and he was coming to be like, I'm going to be a good father to my baby. So that's that's three. Uh, four, he had no idea that they were there and he was just coming to say hello. I don't think that that's what it was. Um, but also, how would he know that they were there? What's he doing at Cleveland? Who else lives at Cleveland? It's the Palmers. Um, the Palmers live at Cleveland. 
the Palmers have a new baby. Maybe he was coming to give his congratulations. Um, that's five. Six, perhaps he, his wife is pregnant and he may, wants to get advice from the Palmers about or something. Or he's coming to give a calling card to be like, guess what? We had a baby. Like, because that's what, something that they do. That's six. Six possibilities. All good possibilities. I will say some of them at the end got a little iffy because it is eight in the evening, which by Austin standards is a late time to call. Otherwise, great predictions. We'll see what happens. Uh, that leads us to the standbys. Funniest quote. I forgot to pick one, but let me wait. You can also go with most intense quote because this this chapter doesn't have a lot of funny ones. Yeah, okay. I can go with a funny one. I mean, there's a lot of really intense ones, but I think that I read them. I read the ones out loud that I felt really hit. So we'll go with something funny because we've gotten into a lot of dark subjects this this episode. So we'll go with this. In dawdling through the greenhouse, where the loss of her favorite plants, unwarily exposed and nipped by the lingering frost, raised the laughter of Charlotte, and in visiting her poultry yard, where, in the disappointed hopes of her dairymaid, by hens forsaking their nests or being stolen by a fox, or in the rapid decrease of a promising young brood, she found fresh sources of merriment. God bless Charlotte Palmer. She's just having a good time. She is. She is. Uh, questions moving forward? What is Willoughby doing there? What's happening with Marianne? where is Mrs. Dashwood? Is she okay? The storm is happening. I'm still really nervous for her and Colonel Brandon getting back safely. Who wins the chapters? Eleanor, Mrs. Jennings, Brandon. Mm, This is hard. They all kind of had their moments. I was going to give it to Marianne for a living, but... (laughs) (laughs) Yes, good for Marianne. She has, knock on wood, made it out of the woods. Let's give it to her. All right. That concludes this long, intense, dramatic episode of Pot and Prejudice. The drama. The drama. Becca, what am I reading next? Tell us, tell us, tell us. Oh, you're reading the next two chapters. That would be chapters 44 and 45. Yes, or volume three chapters eight and nine that concludes the episode until next time listeners stay proper and find yourself someone who will just get in a carriage and go get your mom when your when your sister is sick yeah do that he's a really good egg Pod and Prejudice is edited by Molly Burdick and audio produced by Graham Cook. Our show art is designed by Torrance Brown. Our show is transcribed by Speech Docs Podcast Transcription. For transcripts and to learn more about our team, check out our website at podandprejudice.com. To keep up with the show, you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Pod and Prejudice. If you love what you hear, check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash podandprejudice to see how you can support us or just drop us a rating and a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening.